Hey everyone, before we get started today, I wanted to give some background into both the conversation and the person that we're going to be having the conversation with today. We are at the University of Oklahoma currently hosting our annual Academic Technology Expo. It's a big event that brings together faculty, students alike, to talk about technology within the broader institutional context. And I was able to finagle the keynote speaker to give us some of their time before the talk is actually given later today. His name is Chris Gilliard, and he's not only a friend of mine, he's someone whose work I've been able to follow pretty closely for the last three years, and I've just been in awe of the attention that it's starting to getting, uh, getting as well. Chris is a professor of English at Maycomb Community College, and his scholarship concentrates on privacy, institutional tech policy, a term in which he has called digital redlining, which I'm sure we'll get into a lot today, and the reinventions of discriminatory practices through data mining and algorithmic decision-making, particularly as it applies to college students. He's also currently developing a project I find really interesting. It looks at how popular misunderstandings of mathematical concepts creates the illusion of fairness and objectivity in student analytics, predictive policing, and hiring practices. Again, I'm really excited for us to be able to have this conversation. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and kick it to the end of the world. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Chris, welcome to the end of the world. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have a quick question that I want to ask. So in your recent Educause New Horizons column, you have a quote and that you talk, you said that you often tell your students the web is broken and that the ideal thing to do would be to tear it down and start from scratch. Quickly describe to me how the web is broken. So um, <laughs> I, I should qualify that it, it's broken in that it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, it works quite well for Mike, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and, uh, you know, a couple of other people. Um, but what I mean is that the web is uh, the model we use is, is what Shoshana Zuboff is called uh, surveillance capitalism. And and if other people, other scholars who who talk about platforms like uh, Facebook and, and Google and uh, again, Amazon, Instagram, you know, what have you call uh, I mean it's, it's called platform capitalism right which is the, the notion that um, the way that we exchange our data um, for uh, services or that our data is extracted from us uh, as we move about our day and that that is uh, that surveillance is the predominant mode of the web and we didn't really get to agree to that right I mean and it is, it's important to, to note that that word extracted that as we move about our day, so when I log into the web, right, when I use my phone, or even when my phone's in my pocket, when I turn my phone on, that every moment of the day there's data being extracted from us. And I think that sort of exchanging privacy for goods um, 
in a way where we don't have control over what is taken from us is is a is a busted model. Uh, I, I think it doesn't work well for marginalized communities, for women, for black and brown people, for LGBTQ, uh, for um, vulnerable people of all stripes. I think that's uh, it, it's turning out to not be a very good deal. And so uh, what I'd like to see is sort of uh, us thinking about different models that, that don't that don't work on on extraction and surveillance capitalism. Again, it, it's interesting in a way that um, old school television and its legacy form, if you were to ask people, well, what does what does television produce? What does it sell? And they would all go, well, it sells Starsky and Hutch or cool stuff like that. And the, the truth is it was selling us, right? It was selling our eyeballs. Mm-hmm. So we were already used to a system without really paying attention to it where our attention was the product that they were selling to companies yeah and absolutely I mean and, and advertising I mean uh, media has always been the vehicle for advertising uh, except uh, how that happens changes and again so I don't have um, so the, well, the example I always use is people often say to me well just don't use Facebook okay well yeah great <laughs> I mean and, and there's a couple problems with that but the biggest one is that whether or not I've ever used Facebook Facebook has extensive data on me okay so i don't have any choice in that i have no legal um venues for for making facebook uh delete that data or get rid of it or anything like that uh you know there are, you could just not watch tv and you could just not <laughs> listen to the radio like those are options and then abc or whoever else didn't really have too much data on you but uh we don't have those options anymore and so the game has changed in some pretty significant ways. And, and, and part of that, too, is that based on all the data that's taken from you, all kinds of decisions, uh, decisions get made about you. Um, what kind of loans offers you might receive, how much you pay for services, you know, whether or not you are going to be a suspect in the criminal matters. Um, and again, we don't we can't control that. And. Um, we can't even look in, in, in a lot of cases, we can't even look and see what uh, institutions or platforms have and, and challenge whether or not their data is accurate. So would I guess that uh, some of the implications of the net neutrality move from the FCC recently would probably bother you a bit? It does <laughs> bother me quite a bit. Yeah. I, you know, um, Part of this stems from my uh, my uh, interest in in my work with my students and ideas about kind of who gets what kind of information and and how information access changes depending on who you are and where you are and and what you can afford and what kind of device you have. I think the I mean for me the biggest fear for net neutrality or the loss of it is tiered access. So we don't necessarily know that's going to happen. I mean I think many people are predicting that. Which means that for a lot of people, uh, you know, on the upper end of the um, economy, it, the web probably won't look any different because they'll be able to afford it. Uh, and so whatever the tier is, I mean, so I pay, you know, my ISP is Comcast, right? So I pay for the fastest Internet, right? And uh, unfortunately, um, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. And unfortunately, however much they raise their prices, I'll probably continue to do that. But there are many people for whom that won't be true. And so we'll have, um, this is the fear, is that we'll have ISPs or platforms like Facebook 
determining to even greater degree than we have now who gets what kind of information. And, you know, the last year has shown us that uh, weaponized information or weaponized access, right, or a lack of access um, can have some really unfortunate effects. One of the terms that you utilize quite often is digital redlining. Uh, Would you mind giving us some background just on the, the history of the term redlining and how you and your students, and by the way, I appreciate how you frame everything as the work you and your students are doing. I, I wish more faculty members talked about that way, but that's an aside. Uh, just a little bit more on the background of, of redlining and how you and your students have built on top of it. So, uh, I'm, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I probably would not have ever come to this understanding if I did not teach the students who I teach. And what um, I've learned from, from my time uh, with them is that uh, information access is a, is a, is a class and race-based uh, issue. And I, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with my work, uh, the, briefly, uh, our, uh, the institution where I teach for a long time had uh, content filters on the internet. And so I was able to see firsthand how that affected pedagogy, how that affected teaching, um, how that affected what my students, what kinds of research they could do. And I started to um, recognize the really harmful effects that that can have and also that it's invisible. And so um, a lot of times we're asking students to do research on things that, um, about which they are not experts. And one of the things is, is so if I'm looking up, uh, if I am doing research on comic books, okay, so I'm somewhat of, I might be, I might think of myself as an expert on comic books, okay? So I would know what was missing from any um, body of, of work that I accessed, or I'd have a good idea of what was missing. But if I'm asking my students to do some research on, on uh, copyright and, and downloading music or something like that, right? So they're not necessarily experts in that. They, you know, there's some information they might not be getting but they don't know that they're not getting that information because they're not experts on that. So, you know, so no, so digital redlining. So redlining again is sort of a long-winded explanation. I'm, I'm not, I haven't quite perfected the elevator pitch, <laughs> right? But redlining is a historical concept, right? Um, and there's a lot of people um, who you can um, access who uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' case for reparations talks about it. Uh, in Hannah Jones, who writes for the New York Times, does some uh, incredible work for it uh, about that. But it's a historical um, process by which uh, the federal government contracted the Homeowners Loan Corporation to to draw maps of different areas of the United States where loans would be differentially available. And what those maps looked like, they're color-coded maps of lots of different areas. I mean, uh, Detroit, Chicago, um, New York, uh, Texas, you know, New Orleans, on and on and on. And so you can see, if you look at these maps, um, that there are different areas, color-coded uh, red and green and yellow, things like that. And uh, the red areas are typically marked hazardous. Those are, um, not coincidentally, areas where um, mostly black people lived and areas where loans were not available. And so where banks did not make uh, loans available to the people who live there. 
And so if we think about this in terms of how wealth has been built in the United States, at least, you know, pre-crash and for the previous 70 years, uh, a great deal of that was through home ownership. And so the legacy of how wealth is built and maintained and um, is was very much influenced by a government policy. I mean, influence is not really even a strong enough word. And um, living in Detroit or coming from being growing up in Detroit, I've had access to seeing how those, those effects are still uh, very much present. So um, when I talk about digital redlining, what I think about are the ways that uh, did that uh, say investment decisions, that tech policies, um, that pedagogical practices in the digital world or in, in technology, how they often do that that same they they perform that same function. Right, which is to wall off information, to prevent people uh, from accessing knowledge and wealth, and um, to further uh, entrench uh, a lot of uh, historically uh, discriminatory practices. Yes, I'm just looking at uh, the redlining map of Chicago that's up on the WBEZ website, and it's kind of amazing, I mean, that they actually use that language to talk about it. I think it's a really good thing to bring some of that language into the discussion about access to information and technology as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You talk a little bit about the role that social media has come to play, specifically for youth in regards to media consumption. So uh, one of the things I talk with my students about all the time, and, and again, there's um, lots of work that's being done on this that, that's uh, worth checking out. I don't know if maybe we can put it in the show notes or something, but uh, is that news a lot of times now comes to people uh, instead of us seeking it out. So in the past, I mean, maybe, for instance, you know, and I don't want to paint any idyllic pictures, but maybe people would come home from work and, and plop down in front of the TV and, and turn on the news or something like that. Um, and they would have uh, a few options about uh, which program they chose, right? But or you know you decided which papers to subscribe to and things like that. Um, so, but there were some conscious choices made that were available to you. So now a lot of people, and and I think this is especially true probably of students, uh, the information that they get uh, about current events, for instance, is pushed to them through uh, platforms, through you know Facebook, through uh, Apple News, you know things like that. Um, you know, even through Instagram or WhatsApp, for that matter. Um, and the algorithms that determine who gets what are um, you know behind a, 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 a large. There's like an internet architecture that decides who gets what. And, you know, um, Eli Pryzer's uh, notion of the filter bubble, I think, is important, was some um, important stuff in in thinking about that. But that because information is pushed to you um, and because engagement or staying on a platform is essential in um, how or what gets pushed to you, there's some, I think, some really uh, unfortunate consequences in that. And again, we've seen that in how um, in the election cycle uh, and you know so for instance I, I'll give a, a very specific example so um, I mean we have uh, some degree of transparency and or laws about transparency in uh, political ads 
but uh, there's no such uh, law that covers things for like Facebook. So people can easily, um, and certain um, uh, political parties or certain candidates uh, had, had bragged before um, recent elections that they were t- you know, using targeted ads to actually uh, encourage voters not to turn out, right? To uh, suppress voters. Um, but the, one of the problems with that is, um, so it's it's what might be known as a what's uh, come to be called as a dark post, right? So, no, the only people who know that 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 those posts exist are the people paying for them and the people who see them. And so we don't know, and and because Facebook's a private company, I mean, we don't even you know we don't even have the ability to demand that Facebook show them to us. And and so the and you know and there's no. Uh, there's no laws about whether those things need need to be truthful or accurate or, or anything like that. And so, you know, I think there there's some very there, there's a lot of ways in which the laws have not caught up and, and with uh, the way that news and information gets disseminated now. So the when you're just out of curiosity, when you're working with students, what's the what are the first couple things you tell them so that they're a little more aware of the the situation that they're in in terms of things being pushed at them? Well, I mean, the first thing I would ask them, you know, mm-hmm. does it come, do you do you seek it out or does it come to you? Uh-huh. You know, um, and then I we talk about uh, you know what their experiences are and how they understand these things to work, right? Because a lot of the the workings of Things like uh, Facebook and Google, right? And and so it's important to understand. For instance, I mean, I, I single out Facebook. Google does is is guilty of a lot of um, similar practices. I, uh, but most people actually don't know how Google works, so they don't know why the first um, result is the first result or the second result is the second result. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I get pushback on this, and people resist this. But Google actually. Its primary function is to track you and sell you stuff. Okay, <laughs> so the the fact that like you um, that it you know their their claim that their their goal is to organize the world's information, right? Like it should have an asterisk or that should be number two or something like that. Like right, right after make the world a better place, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, I heard that in a story about Elon Musk this morning because they were talking about some of the problems at Tesla and, and he was like, the, we're trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> right, right. Well, this, was, this is a conversation that I, w- I was having in like 2012 when Google launched Google Plus and the, the, the conversation was does Google, how does Google Plus eventually battle with Facebook and Twitter and you know, it, it's Google entering the war. And I kept saying, no, it's not. It's just asking for the information that Facebook already has that Google doesn't have access to. And once you've created the profile, they could care less, you know, like if, if you use it instead of Facebook. They just wanted that information. And then quickly what you saw was the Google Plus profile became the backbone of virtually every Google product. Was you had to have this profile that gave first all your private information and social connections. Uh, and then and then you could use the YouTube and, and, and Gmail and all the other Google Suite products as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I mean, I tend to give, I have a, a large um, bank of ridiculous examples. And so I, I tend to give students uh, some examples about, say, how you might get uh, differential pricing based on what kind of computer you're using or where you're searching from and things like that. Right? So make it concrete. Um, 
you know, uh, and so when we learn a little bit more about how these things work, then we can talk about maybe some strategies for doing things differently or understanding when Google's appropriate versus something else, you know, another search engine or, you know, databases or, or whatever. Um, but that, that's the entry point is to, is to talk about their experiences with it. You know, because one of the, in, one of the things I think it's important to note is students already have, they already do research, right? Like they already have their methods of um, obtaining information, of finding answers, of validating uh, the things that they do find. Um, it's important to, for them to, to get them to articulate those. But also, it's important to not just come in and say, okay, well, everything you do is wrong, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you've been using your right hand the whole time, and now I want you to use your left. I mean, that's not going to work. I, do you remember the time when our great fear was breeding cynicism, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that every, like, the daily show was going to make everybody just not believe in a reality, right? Yeah. And it turned out that that, that problem was happening, but not from, not from where we thought it was going to happen from. Yeah. You mentioned this uh, bucket of examples that you give for your students. I wanted to talk about a tweet that you had December 29th, 2017, that fateful morning in which you sent out <laughs> the question, what's the most absurd or invasive thing that tech platforms do or have done that sounds made up but is actually true? And this was fun to follow uh, from a standpoint that you could read this thread and you got all these examples the tweet kind of blew up uh, f fairly quickly. But then I saw people, I would say, completely outside of our similar Twitter circle, like referencing it. Like a, like a friend of mine that works at Microsoft was like, hey, you got to check out this thread. <laughs> uh, and it became this larger conversation. But I, I, I want to know, what, what are some of the examples that you were able to get from uh, from, 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 from that single tweet? So uh, I, there are so many. Um... I'm trying to think of, uh, I mean, I, I, I most easily recall some of the ones that I, that I laid out. So, such as, uh, you know, I mean, and there are some real repeat offenders on there, like, uh, Google and Facebook and Uber. Um, you know, the, the one that lots of people don't believe or have trouble believing is that Uber was using their data to determine who was, uh, having one night stands. Um, <laughs> which, which writers were having one night stands, <laughs> but it ranged. I mean, you know, Sony was, uh, um, forcing people to install digital rights management software, which would, had a bunch of malware on it. Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of, uh, some of the more, some, oh, you know, um, lots of people talked about their creepy and, and I can talk a little bit more about that word and, and how it's used, which I think is interesting, but their creepy interactions with Facebook, which is, so Facebook, uh, they do a lot of things to try and figure out who to recommend to you as friends. Okay. Um, and they don't necessarily, they often don't reveal the secret sauce on how they're determining that. And so people, for instance, someone, uh, replied to me that Facebook had asked them to review their therapist. Okay, so this person um, said that they went to, they go to a, a, a clinic that has six other therapists. Okay, so they've never mentioned Facebook, or they've never mentioned their specific therapist in, in uh, you know, to Facebook. And yet Facebook somehow knew to ask them to review that therapist instead of one of the other um, five. 
So, you know, that kind of granularity is, uh, I mean, that's, that's sensitive information, right? There's HIPAA and there's, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons you might not want Facebook doing that. It'd um, be like getting a, 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 would you please review your prescribed medications yeah, or something absolutely. like that? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's so, I mean, there were, I, I mean, just in, in sort of replies, I think I've got something like 500 replies um, to that to that tweet that were people giving different examples. Let's talk about the word creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually have a problem with this word. Um, I think it's not strong enough um, because creepy and, you know, I also think it's gendered in some interesting ways. Um, I mean, creepy doesn't necessarily mean the same to me that it might to other people. Like, because when something, when I think something's creepy, I don't necessarily think of it as dangerous. Um, I just don't like the way it looks or it makes me feel or something like that. Um, however, I think a lot of these practices are dangerous. And so I tend to use the word invasive or, or something like that. But creepy, I think, and I wish I could think of the name of the article, but one of the ways that reasons I think that creepy is developed is that there's a notion of what is often called information asymmetry, right? Which is that somebody knows somebody in this case, you know, being a platform, uh, knows more information about you than you know about them. You don't necessarily know what they know about you or how they knew, how they know that about you or how they're going to choose to reveal it. Okay. So, you know, that that's come to be known as information asymmetry, right? Which is, the, and that's, there's that uncomfortable feeling. So like to, to draw an example is like if someone came up to you on the street and said, hey, Adam, you know, like someone you don't know, like, hey, Adam, you know, I saw that picture of you last night, you know, like, and you don't know that person, right? <laughs> Why are they looking at pictures of you? How did they see them? <laughs> Why do they know your name? You know, um, and so platforms do this all the time. I mean, there's even become this sort of genre of, uh, you know, um, different companies dragging their, uh, their users. So like Netflix, um, when Netflix releases, uh, info about someone who watched an Adam Sandler movie 30 times or something like that and makes fun of them in an ad or Spotify doing, doing something similar. Right. Well, (laughs) I mean, again, like all these companies have extensive dossiers on, on their, their users. Uh, but the notion that they're going to release that, even if they don't say who that is, I mean, the person who watched 30 Adam Sandler movies knows who's, who they are. Right. So, even, and, and also there's, I mean, there have been lots of studies where that, that data can be used to re-identify people, but that notion of information asymmetry and again, our, our inability to have any say in, um, Looking at that data, editing that data, correcting it, you know, deleting it. Like, no, most of the time, those aren't options. I want to go back to um, that, that first initial quote that I read. Uh, the quote, um, the web is broken and the ideal thing to do would be to tear it down and start from scratch. Um, I know this isn't your expertise, but... Um, Imagine that you are the person whose job is to build it from scratch again. <laughs> 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 what, 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 what are the things that you're laying down on the first day of building the new web that you want to see as the principles of, of the future of the web? Well, I mean, um, 
I, I think the first thing that we have to argue, right, and there, there are plenty of people who would argue that even from the onset, that the web was meant as a surveillance engine. You know, there's a, there's a strong case to be made for that. But if I'm starting from scratch, uh, um, and, and we've talked about this before, Adam, like, I'm starting with the notion of consent, right? So that I should get to say who gets what of my information, okay? So like a, a, one of the ridiculous things that we have now is that I actually don't own the rights to my face. So like facial recognition is run on us all the time through, um, through, uh, like uh, on the web and through government um, entities and this, all the time. And this is like the big ad of like the iPhone X, right? Right now it's like you can unlock your phone <laughs> right, with your right, face. Right. It's like the, 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 it's the most selling feature that they have for their, their new model. Yeah. It's crazy. But it's, it's legal for anybody in most states anyway. It's legal for just companies to run facial recognition on you um, and put that into their database. Or um, any, you know, anytime you use the web, I mean, there's all kinds of data being extracted from you and you, again, you don't have any say in that. And, you know, I mean, if someone is out there thinking, well, just don't use the web. I mean, I mean, how far exactly are we going to take this? There, well, there's, <laughs> I mean, I think it's an interesting, the, the distinction between opting in and opting out in yeah. terms of an approach. Yeah. So everything is sort of automatically, you have to opt out. Yeah. You're already in. Right, right. <laughs> um, so that's where I would start. You know, and I mean, personally, I think, um, I've, you know, this may or may not seem radical, but I think uh, multi-billion dollar corporations that um, control the web, um, you know, are very, uh, pretty dangerous, right? So if you think, what, one of the terms that people use is the duopoly, right? Which is Google and Facebook. And Every almost every interaction on the web is driven by advertising, in the um, the attempt to uh, extract people's data, monetize it, sell them stuff. Like at its core, that's what almost everything you do on the web, and that's that's its base. So like I'd, I'd like maybe to change that, you know. And again, like um, <laughs> like that. I guess you're saying, you know, that's sort of the king for a day um, idea, right? To change that, we'd have to change a whole lot of things. Um, but to to think that everything that you do online, you know, or on your phone, on apps, right, it's basically dedicated to trying to make you click and buy something. Okay, well, like, maybe there's other ways to do that. <laughs> I mean, well, there's yeah, because I think it's interesting that at the same time there were sort of these, uh, not not quite the utopian initial ideas of what the internet was going to be, but these notions of generosity, and that you see occasionally in the internet that are just beautiful interactions between people. Um, I noticed some things on on some local sites that are sites where people um, make available actually food that they've made. They said we made some food, there's too much, and these are on the micro-local sites. If you want to come over and get it, here's where I am. And there's some places where that might not be a good idea. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but I think that there's and, and I, so I think not to get too deeply into the politics of it, but I think there's this confusion between an economic system and a social system that becomes part of it. And as long as it ends up being like what you're suggesting, fundamentally an economic system rather than a social system, we're, we're done. Yeah. Right? yeah. And the interesting thing about that, too, is that it's how uh, so many companies have deployed the, the language of the social system 
to forward their economic yeah. system, right? Like Facebook is not about community, okay? I mean, you can use it for that. <laughs> like, um, but again, one of the, the things, uh, the ways I think about it is that in communities you have responsibilities and you also have a voice, right? So in my neighborhood or in my family or at my uh, institution, at my school, like all things I might name as my communities, I have responsibilities, I have rights, I have a voice, you know, and again, like to some extent or, or, or not right on Facebook. I, I mean, my, my choice is use it or not, but still, and, and as, as we've discussed, still be a part of that ecosystem. So, you know, and uh, I mean, you could talk to some sociologists about this, but you can't have a community of 4 billion people or 2 billion people, however many users Facebook has. Yeah. Then the other thing is that we end up sort of in a position of having us and them being used against us all the time, mm-hmm. like who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group, which, um, you know, also can be used against you if you're not paying a lot of attention. It's funny, I was picturing, like, how the notion of community would try to incorporate mouse print into its activities. <laughs> like, how do you get, how do you get, how do you say that much in that shorter period of time? Because nobody reads it, right? I mean, nobody reads the stuff that they agree to. Yeah. So it's, it's and, and that's, you know, information being leveraged against people who are participating all the time. So even even the idea of consent is kind of distorted to such a great degree. Right. So um, yesterday, which would be January 11th, was the uh, fifth anniversary of the uh, death of Aaron Schwartz. And uh, Aaron Schwartz was uh, an uh, early and very important participant in uh, – in what's what we know of in the web, he uh, actually co-developed uh, RSS feeds, real simple syndication, when he was, I think, fourteen, which you know, of course, makes my life pointless, right? After a certain, but uh, amazing intellect and an amazing person. Um, if you want, you can find speeches he's delivered online that are really moving in terms of perceptions of where the internet could have been and where it started going. And uh, one of the things, and so what Aaron Schwartz was interested in doing was trying to make sure that all of the research that was being done that was produced in journals, um, he was concerned about the availability of that because in the general public, unless you're part of a university, you don't have access to things that you technically paid for if you live in a state that happens to have public universities, which is uh, all of them. Um, (laughs) And so... But you don't have access to it without having to pay for the privilege. Um, So Aaron Schwartz was beginning to do some things to try to maybe address that issue, which included doing something that in and of itself wasn't illegal, which was setting up. Well, I guess it was kind of because he set up a computer and started downloading all of uh, a uh, a storage area called JSTOR, which is sort of where all of the it's it's essentially a paywall way of of making for exclusive access to all of that research. And so he was then um, basically brought up on charges from the federal government for you know, breaking federal law. And uh, he was a person who was already suffering from uh, depression. Um, and uh, it just seemed like the, the prosecution was really a persecution and really was centered around the idea of trying to essentially control who has access to information, very much like the, the redlining that, that you're talking about. Um, so it's certainly a, uh, it, it's an anniversary that should not go uh, unmentioned. 
And I think he was an amazing person. And I think listening to, to some of what he had to say would be, uh, there, there's an amazing conversation you can still find that uh, Chris Hayes had on uh, his, I think his old show is called Up With Chris Hayes. And he has a panel which includes uh, Aaron Schwartz's partner, uh, ta Coates, Larry Lessig. It's just an amazing discussion about, and uh, Susan Crawford, who wrote uh, a book about how uh Basically, once you have broadband access controlled by a particular company, then there really is no competition anymore. So there's no drive that would get them to improve your service. So whatever your service is, no matter how bad it is, there's really no competition going on. So that's so. And that discussion you can you can find online too. I think we'll put a note about that in the in the show notes. I I know some of your work, Chris, has dealt with access to journals um, and how that that. Uh, can vary it from even institution to institution. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, um, I I think one of the things that's really important about this is that it's invisible to most people who don't know how it works. And you know, I'm not singling out students here. I've run into plenty of faculty and instructors and instructional technologists who actually don't know this either. Uh, the the degree to which tiered access and also um, as as you mentioned the the ways in which like we we're paying for a lot of times we're paying for these things twice right or we're being asked to pay for them twice uh, you know and so uh, one of the things I do you know I'm and and is I I show students uh, different strategies to uh, to get access to materials that um, we might not normally have at our institutions right and. Some of these, I mean, they're all legal, I should say. <laughs> I don't encourage my students to break the law. However, I think it's important, it's important to mention that legal is a moving target, and it's adjustable, and it's adjustable based on who gets to say what's going on in the room. Yeah. And that means it's very important for people to participate in the conversation about that. Right. right. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, Aaron Schwartz was persecuted under the CFAA, you know, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which, uh, I mean, you know was uh, a, a congressional response to uh, the movie War Games, right? Which I think was, what, 1988? So, uh, <laughs> I mean... That's right? terrifying. Yeah, yes, it's... I, it's yeah. Um, and, and very few changes since then. Um, and, yeah, that is... that That's absolutely correct. Yeah, and it, I think, you know, yeah, what we can do or what, what I think what's important is to... to you know, I think it's inherently unjust, right? And and I'm I'm very careful when I use that language, um, but I think, and, and I'm not necessarily a proponent of this argument, but I think one way to to conceptualize it is in terms of uh, lost opportunity, lost uh, lost societal gains, right? Because we don't know what people could do if they had access to the right information, right? Um, and, and again, I'm not necessarily a fan. I, I think the it's also important for other reasons, but purely from an economic standpoint or a, a, a discussion about what benefits society. Um, by saying only certain people who can afford it get to access scientific information, get to access literature, right? get to access the body of knowledge that our um, world has built up, we're basically saying, right, well, um, all these other people who could possibly, with access to this information, make tremendous contributions to society, cure diseases, right? Uh, 
be inventors, be entrepreneurs, right? Um, we're preventing, in a lot of cases, preventing them from doing that because, just because, or simply because of lack of access to information. There is one, you know, one thing that I usually try to bring up as frequently as I possibly can, so I'll take this opportunity to say it once again, is uh, it's very important, I think, for people to understand fair use and understand what their rights are in terms of uh, the way communication works, so that when they're participating in whatever they're doing, uh, that they, there's a, that's that's an easy way to start to sort of angle into the conversation about knowing what your, what your rights are in terms of being able to participate in the conversation about media. And that's where literacy becomes an important thing. It's sort of like understanding what you have the rights to do and understanding um, what the consequences are for the choices that you make, but not letting that necessarily be dictated by just an automatic takedown routine or something like that, but understanding what you really do legally have the right to do when you're, say, posting a video on the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think, um, I mean, to my dismay, these are often not um, discussions that students are having. I mean, I personally, I think they should be having these from the beginning, uh-huh. right? I mean, I, my 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 uh, my kid is thirteen, and they've uh, read plenty of privacy policies, right? They know what a DMCA is, you know. I mean, um, <laughs> we talk about copyright and fair use and consent and taking people's images and and all of that, um, you know. And and they're really smart, you know. Uh, but I, I think that um, I think we should be having these conversations with all kinds of, of young people, um, not only in terms of kind of protecting themselves, but also I think that kind of literacy is important if we're going to, um, develop different ways of, of approaching the stuff that we've, um, the, the myths or mess we find ourselves in. Yeah, I think uh, particularly the skills that end up being a necessary component of that. Um, there's a lot of interesting discussion going on that's going to be going on, I think, over the next few months about the First Amendment and about free speech and about living in an environment where people who want to make stuff up have just as much access to your face as people who are actually saying things that are real. And, you know, are, are we in a culture where we've invested in um, people so that they have the skills necessary to tell the difference? which is always tricky, right? right? Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Chris, and then I also just want to personally thank you for coming to Norman, Oklahoma, for being involved in the Academic Technology Expo, uh, giving us uh, your time as well. It's been it's been inspiring, if nothing else, to, to watch your work uh, grow and disseminate over the last few years. So. Oh, thank you. It's been absolutely my pre- uh, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And this is all assuming that the world doesn't end too. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, we're always we, we always like to be on that cutting edge. Remember, every day brings you a day closer yeah, to yeah. the end of the world. It's it's a joke that we still find funny every yeah. episode. So it's just, <laughs> it's just gonna, an we're gonna lean into it. Well, my my one of my running jokes about when t- people talk about the future is it's so cute that they think the world's gonna still be around. Right. But I can't say that with you with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. We don't believe that. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>